Welcome to the latest episode of the EEF podcast, Evidence Into Action. This is a new episode for the new school year, and it focuses on evidence-informed school leadership. We've got our usual focus on expertise from the school system, along with school leaders and teachers giving their perspective from the front line. We're really pleased that today we have Nick Brook joining us, General Secretary um, at NEHT and Chair of the School Improvement Commission. We've also got Asima Iqbal, Assistant Principal from Billsley Research School in the Midlands, and Andy Samways, Director of Teaching School Hub and Research School at Unity Schools. My co-host, who's rejoining us, is um, Kirsten Mould. Kirsten, can you introduce yourself? Thanks, Alex. Yes. Um, here in a slightly different role for those of you familiar with previous podcasts. So um, fresh out of uh, school leadership in secondary school in Shropshire and now working full time for the EEF as senior content manager. So helping to ensure our content is accessible and actionable for school leaders and teachers, but gaining insights from the profession to share and to guide our further developments. Thanks, Kirsten. It's good to have you back and experienced hands. So it's always helpful to steer me through uh, choppy waters when I make any mistakes. Uh, let's first um, open it up to Nick. Uh, Nick, really pleased to have you. Do you want to do a bit of a fuller introduction to your background and, and your relation to, to schools and school leadership? And, and then we'll dive into this evidence-informed school leadership question. Sure. Good to see you. Um, I'm a Deputy General Secretary at NEHT, the School Leaders Union. We represent around 35,000 school leaders in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. And I've been here for about six years now. And as you say, I chaired the Accountability and School Improvement Commissions in recent years. Before that, I uh, ran a consultancy. I was uh, a a Senior Officer at Ofsted for a while and started my career as a primary teacher on the South Coast. That's great. So you you had all the hats then in terms of um, from inspectorate, schools, um, outside working, supporting schools. So that's a really unique perspective. So it'd be great to get your take. And, and we focused this episode on evidence-informed school leadership. And I think we need to get into that, kind of explore what that is. But there's an assumption there that using evidence, using research evidence is a good thing. This is the EF podcast after all. Um, but we also know that, you know, research evidence isn't some shiny, easy thing. School leadership is complex, multifaceted. So we want to explore all the, the positives, the potential, but also perhaps some of the, the downsides. And I think in your role, you'll be able to bring lots of different angles on that. We wanted to start with a potentially quick question, but just actually a personal instance where can you explain if there's a piece of research evidence that changed the way you think about education? Might be a quick question, but it's uh, it's not an easy one yeah. there, is it, Alex? Um, um, sure. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick, actually pick two pieces of research, if, if that's okay. The first, the first one is actually a, a piece that was done by the Education Policy Institute back in 2016 uh, uh, by uh, Joe Hutchinson. It was on school inspection in England. I think it was called, uh, Is There Room to Improve? Now that, that piece of research, uh, showed that inspection judgments can be as much a reflection of the wealth in communities served as the quality of education uh, that is provided by the school. And that was an absolutely influencing factor in my decision to convene the Accountability Commission uh, back then to determine a fair way of holding schools to account. So for me, that piece of research really did uh, uh, you know, heavily influenced the direction I then worked in. And the second piece 
was uh, one by Toby Greeny and Rob Hyam in 2018, Hierarchy, Markets and Networks. Now, that piece of research really got me thinking a lot more deeply about the importance of place and locality and, uh, and how we need to shift the balance to collaboration over competition uh, within schools. We paraphrased uh, one of the findings of, of that work in our School Improvement Commission report, which was uh, that knowledge and expertise around school improvement have increasingly become a commodity to be sold rather than insight to be shared. And it's fair to say that that really did help to steer the direction that that report went in. So, um, so two pieces of research there that have, uh, have shaped my life, uh, at least in the most uh, more recent years. That's really interesting. Can I, can I pick up on the second piece, Nick? And you made a point about the importance of place. And, and this is perhaps where one of the tensions lie with, with this notion of using research evidence to inform school improvement, that sometimes you get general insights, national insights, and then you have local school context. What, what's your perspective? So, you know, you work with countless schools across the country, you've already described. Where's the, this balancing act between general insights, national perspectives, and then the local and regional implementation and, and, and use? That's interesting, I suppose. What we, what we see too often, I think, is um, national policy being perhaps evidence-led rather than evidence-informed, in that we think we've stumbled across the right answer and therefore we assume that is an answer that will work for all. And then there's this trick where we try and reconcile what we've been asked to do nationally with what the reality is on the ground. It was described to me actually uh, a few weeks ago, I wish it was, a, I thought it was a really powerful uh, analogy that, that in this country, we, we quite often take a cafetiere approach to policy formation in that we, we push down from on high and, and just try and push our, our, our solutions out throughout the entire system rather than taking that ground at that bottom up um, uh, Percolation of ideas, that's, that's stretching the analogy far too far, clearly. I like but, it, I like you know, it. <laughs> we've, we've got to, I think, find a way of, of actually reconciling what, we, what our best bets are from on top, where the evidence suggests this looks like it's really promising with a recognition that actually it's not going to work everywhere. And actually, more often than not, we need to be looking and seeing, okay, um, what are the unique circumstances and how does this need to be adapted in order to maximise the benefit that we need on the ground? So... When it comes to something like locality, I think that's been really interesting and it's been very uh, powerful getting underneath that. I, you know, I've, I've seen, for example, how local education partnerships like Camden Learning have had enormous impacts on bringing their schools together locally to making sense of, of what's been asked to be done on top and bringing together within those communities, both academies and maintained schools. I think there's real power for within there. And, and I think there's something within all of this which is going to be really important for us as well as we look forward towards a potentially a fully academized system about how do we encourage trust to think beyond the trust? How do we ensure that people feel that they're not just part of a family, their strong family of schools within their trust, but they're also part of a local family of schools and the local community of schools on the ground as well, and recognizing that you have the responsibility both to the pupils on your role and the children in your trust, but also. Uh, the children in the community that you're you're based in. So I think there's some really interesting tensions within all of this. So, you know, the, we, we love clarity from the centre. You know, we love to actually think that we've stumbled across the, the silver bullet, the answer to all of our problems. 
but you know that, can, that in itself can create all sorts of tensions and unintended consequences on the ground. Yeah, that, I, I like that point about the kind of the tensions and, and the balancing act. So I think that choice of evidence informed is you know often carefully differentiated between evidence based and evidence based might kind of insinuate that you just take the evidence from the center and you just apply it and it will work but actually those tensions that you describe sometimes it's even within a local trust and the differences mm. require that sensitive awareness of the evidence that intelligent adaptation um and and probably that that kind of culture of, of percolation I, I love that analogy of the kind of the pushing down and, and the percolation but actually, I think too often we either we we polarize, don't we? Will it almost be you know kind of one or the other? Well, actually, often it's this complex tension that you describe. Um, one of the th- one of the things about the school system, and you know, we've seen this from the lens of the commission, is over the last ten years there's been a real pro- proliferation of of evidence use. You know, EF's part of that. You know, I'm really proud of that from the use of the toolkit and, you know, millions of children being engaged in trials. But also you have, you know, conferences, you have research, ed, you have publications like TES who very clearly are interested in, in sharing research evidence. What's your perspective of this change over time and, and with your work with school leaders in particular and, and an emphasis on school improvement? Is this a trend that you see? Is it wholly positive? Are there some challenges there? Just get your take on that. Absolutely. It's a trend to see over the last decade, research undoubtedly has become more embedded in the work of school leaders. And, you know, I'm sure it's absolutely no coincidence that corresponds with the the growing influence and reach of the Education Endowment Foundation. And and for that matter, uh, organisations like the Education Policy Institute and the Charter College of Teaching. I think, uh, you know, all of this has a a role to play. We've we've certainly come a long way. But, you know, I, I I think you just have to look back four to five years or so, not even over the last decade, because like it was a very short period of time ago, actually, where we're in a situation where the use of, of data and management information systems to track progress and predict outcomes, you know, had, had reached obsessive levels in education. You know, that that data management had had become confused with, with leadership grip. Um, you know, as, as a system, we were we were valuing management of data over leadership of learning. We were creating an industry around data capture. In fact, we were we were putting people on national platforms to celebrate leaders that were able to show colourful spreadsheets and trajectories for improvement. Now, I think the biggest success of the last few years has been the fact that we changed that narrative. You know, we've changed that narrative. We're now talking increasingly about the things that actually matter in education, the the things that improve pupil outcomes. So I don't think we should underestimate the distance that we have come in a very short period of time. How much further have we got to travel? I I really do worry that a lot of our engagement with research is becoming quite superficial. And I, I genuinely worry about that. And whilst on the one side, I, you know, I think it's fantastic development, what the, the EEF toolkit to enable people to, to readily engage with summary research evidence, we need to make sure that people have the time and the inclination, frankly, to get beneath those headline data, to pr- properly understand the, the conditions in which that research found the impact 
that that is stated and also therefore how they can apply that to their own circumstances and i do worry somewhat that because we are so time poor you know we attempt yeah. to shortcut our uh, uh you know the you know our, our practice that we can point to eef and ofsted may well be satisfied because you can say i'm i'm evidence informed um uh, in in terms of having selected these uh, interventions as being good bets for us but actually we risk actually not making a jot of difference because we're not applying them in a way in which uh, that that impact can be realized that's a really interesting point can i pick up then on the on the superficial mm. aspect and the potential of superficial compliance so i think that's one that we're conscious of and and it can be easy can't it to cite evidence but then use it in a really surface way just to tick a box ultimately what what do you think are some of those conditions in terms of offering school leaders that time to kind of walk into the complexity to think about considerations for their context sometimes you mentioned about trust sometimes it might be within trusts or it might be within individual schools what type of conditions do you think are necessary for a, a real high quality engagement with evidence well, we certainly argued within School Improvement Commission that we need to be creating positive learning cultures within every school. And, uh, you know, that we would interpret that as being having uh, real value for, for research evidence as well as sort of investment in CPDL as well. So, you know, they, you know, I think all of these things are wrapped up within one another. How do you create a positive culture within schools that values research uh, values in, you know, is invested in the success of individuals and is prepared to invest in their development. Uh, the the uh, one of the headline um, statements around the the school improvement commission, of course, was was saying schools are only as good as the people that are in them, and it's the school leader's job to create the conditions in which people can thrive. So, what does that actually look like in practice? I think that's a fundamental question, and and I do think it comes down to to questions here about having you know, time prioritized, having, having the skills and having the motivation to do so in, in all of this. And, and I worry because we are so time poor that we, rather than creating sufficient time to engage with research evidence, we in a, in a, instead move towards how can we make this research evidence as easy to engage with as possible? And we risk that oversimplification of it. So whilst I'd absolutely 100% support that direction of travel of Let's, you know, let's be honest. How often do you pick up a research report and find it, the language so impenetrable that anyone other than a researcher is going to really struggle to, you know, make, make head and a tail of it? You know, there's absolutely a need to make research accessible to the target audience. But we must also guard against uh, an oversimplification, which, which where, where people don't dig beneath all of that. You know, how do we build capacity within each and every individual school? Um, if we're not going to be able to just, you know, wave a magic wand and create an extra five hours a week in which uh, we can be, be engaging with research properly. Um, but I will just say this, I think this is the difference between, for me, evidence-informed and evidence-led. Evidence-led is that we know what the answer is, right, now the challenge is to compel everyone to do this. And then that's that superficial engagement and that's passive engagement in, in, in research. And that evidence informed, which for me is nothing more than, than a starting point. We have external research evidence, which gives you a, you know, a good bet. A, you know, you know, here's, some, uh, here's a good starting point for, um, for, uh, for, for what you're looking for. But then 
it's the the continual work of of understanding, get, developing your understanding, your insight in terms of what works and what doesn't in your own particular context, and that that embedding it within your own school. That's where the hard work comes, and that's the bit which is is going to be the the hard trick to pull off in the current circumstances when uh, when nobody has quite enough hours in the day. Yeah, absolutely. I think recognizing that complexity and just the amount of communications that comes, you know, to school leaders on a daily basis, you know, regular communications, evidence, statutory, non-statutory advice. I recognize that absolute challenge for school leaders to, to cut through this and bring their own context and professional ex- expertise to the to the evidence. You know, thinking about tutoring as an example of being that that, you know, all-encompassing and so many messages around it. I've just wondered whether you can reflect on some concrete examples. Some some schools have really tried to take what evidence informed means into their practice. Okay, I think the I think the National Tutoring Program is a really interesting um, initiative and experience that we've had over the last couple of years. In that, there's at the heart of this, the ambition is absolutely the right one. The evidence from AEF is absolutely clear that this is one of the very best bets that we've got for accelerating pupil progress from between three to five months from from the work that's been done over the last few years. The the, the rationale for this and and as to why it was going to be and why it should be a cornerstone of of an education recovery strategy was absolutely strong. But then the application of it, I think, has fallen well short. Now, it's absolutely right that you know, in test condition, three, five months accelerated progress was achieved. But that does not mean and equate to the fact that, that in every single circumstance across the country in 22,000 schools, three to five months accelerated progress will be found for every pupil. And yet the approach we've taken almost assumes that. We're very comfortable with a narrative of saying the, the, the uh, impact that tutoring will have, but we're not showing anything like enough curiosity to properly understand what difference it's making in different circumstances. So the, the, the vast majority of tutoring that's now taking place in this country is through the school-led tutoring route, which gives schools almost complete freedom to determine how they wish to, uh, uh, to sort of like take advantage of the tutoring offer. That means we've had a thousand flowers bloom across the country. But amongst all of those flowers, there are going to be plenty of weeds that are growing. And right now, I don't think we can tell the flowers from the weeds because we have not put in place any attempts to sort of like measure the impact or evaluate the different approaches. We know very little actually about what works when it comes to tutoring. We need to be a lot more curious about the different conditions. We need to go beyond the, the notion of uh, the importance of, of relationship between teacher and tutor and start asking questions about dosage, about time of day about qualification of tutors, about the different experience of different pupil groups, the different experience of different year groups, the different experience within different subjects. We need to be getting underneath the skin of what's working and what's not, because unless we can start to point to to the the impact that has been uh, had in certain conditions, the National Tutoring Programme will will wither on the vine once once the additional investment has disappeared. We need to be able to know what's working, what's not. So we can say going forward, we will do more of what's working and we will do less of what's not. That for me is a bringing together of the national with the local. We have a good bet here, a best bet. Here's something that that gives us real cause for optimism that this could be transformational, but let's not 
pretend it's a silver bullet. Let's make sure that we are humble enough and have shown enough humility to believe that, that, that there are other things which may come through which could be even better. Uh, that brings me to the final question then, Nick, and it's um, your job, you know, your role at NHD is about supporting school leaders through, you know, let's be honest, our, our challenging times for a whole host of reasons. Um, part of the commission, I'm sure, was to look ahead to the future and a positive vision for the future. In terms of where schools are now and, and evidence being part of that kind of school improvement, what would your kind of pithy sense of in three or four years' time, you'd hope for improvements in the system? You mentioned about capacity, about people, about relationships earlier. What would your kind of final summary be of a, of a thriving, evidence-informed school system? I think all of the evidence shows that our system has transformed over the last 25 years or so that where failure was seen to be almost endemic in some parts, you know, that is, you know, virtually er er eradicated. You know, we've got near on 90% of schools in this country, according to Ofsted, that are good or better. So what I would like to see, I suppose, moving forward, though, is a recognition that what has helped lift our system to good is not going to push it onto great. And that if we want to move beyond where we are, we need to rebalance holding schools to account with helping them to improve. I think we need to um, have a much more proportionate approach to inspection, which, which still in, enables us to identify uh, failure or risk of failure in the system and take action to address that where that is present. But where much more of our time and effort is spent looking about how we can support schools to improve. Now, and within that, you know, I, I sort of point to our conclusions in the School Improvement Commission, which were about creating those conditions in which teachers can thrive so that pupils can succeed. And that is about focusing our efforts on creating positive learning cultures in schools, proper engagement with research evidence, uh, CPDL, uh, you know, uh, moving beyond the limitations that we've had with performance management over a number of years where, where conversations have been stilted and stymied by their link to pay progression and actually thinking about what we need to do in order to uh, to, to use those powerfully as, as mechanisms for the continuous improvement so that we, we move on from thinking that we can just look for those silver bullets where, uh, where sort of like the, you know, look for rapid improvement because we're worried that we have a sort of Damocles of the inspectorates uh, hanging above our heads here. And instead we're more focused on those small incremental improvements day in, day out, week in, week out in each and individual classrooms. And that's the shift that we need to make here where we play the long game, we invest in our people, we value our people, and we generate proper collaboration between schools locally where we take an attitude that we're not in competition with one another. You know, we all fail if one of us fails and we all succeed if we're all succeeding. Yeah, that's great, thanks, Nick. I, I think, I think the final point to the pinch the final word is that that standout point about creating that culture for school leaders and teachers to thrive, finding that space. And that's where they're the conditions for evidence-informed practice. And without those, then the tensions arise, the, the issues proliferate. So that's a good place, to, good place to end, the culture of thriving school leaders engaging with evidence. Thank you, Nick. Oh, thanks, Alex. Thanks, Chris.
So I'm really pleased to speak to our first school leader, Asima Iqbal, Vice Principal, Curriculum and EYFS at Billsley Research School in the Midlands, part of the Elliott Foundation. Uh, Asima, can you talk just a little bit about your background um, and uh, how you got here today in terms of in terms of education, not in terms of um, cars or trains? Okay, so good morning uh, and thank you. In terms of uh, my education, my career, um, my background is earlier. So I trained as an earlier specialist a very long time ago. And even during my training, earliest fascinated me. And when I then became an NQT, I started in nursery and reception and then moved on to year one, year three. And it was all about child initiative learning, even in my very school where I was working in year three. So that whole holistic child development played a big factor in terms of my teaching and the pedagogical approaches that I applied. I soon then became a leader in terms of faith leader, early years lead, assistant principal, and my role developed into curriculum as well. And I like the links from early years and the principles that I can take from there in terms of holistic development and concept-based learning and that assessment cycle and how we applied it to a curriculum approach. I then moved on to Belsley Primary School where I led the early years and curriculum as well. And then my career kind of then developed into um, senior leadership as well. And then I took on responsibility in terms of CPD and coaching as well and working with leaders and middle leaders. And in terms of my day to day role now, it's working with those middle and senior leaders and developing them and their teaching practice alongside um, quite a bit of school to school support within the trust but externally as well. That's brilliant. I think we'll explore some of that and some of the kind of people and practices and uh, this session this podcast is about evidence-informed leadership and I think we're trying to get under the skin of what that might mean I think there's a, a broad understanding that you know, in England we have school leaders who engage with evidence engage with research evidence in various ways and it, and it feels like part of the fabric of what we do but we want to you know, dig into the reality of that real examples and a, a quick opening question is to kind of initiate some specifics in that so can you explain is there a piece of research evidence that changed the way you think about education okay in terms of the piece of piece of research that I want to talk about it's from quite a long time ago uh, very early on in my career like I've mentioned I was fascinated by early years and I was researching effective practice within the early years so I came across a report by Siraj Blatchford amongst others about researching effective pedagogy styles within the early years and it was fascinating in terms of the report and how they spoke about the complexities and the different layers in terms of early years and how they compared good and excellent excellent settings and the common themes amongst them and they spoke a lot about adult to child interaction and um, in terms of sustained shared thinking and the good what made the difference between the excellent and the good settings was that element of child to adult uh, interaction and elements of sustained shared thinking. But what was really interesting was that report also concluded that it didn't happen as often as it should. When it did happen, they all agreed that it enabled children to critically think and be independent and learn a lot more. And it was a prerequisite for these effective earlier settings it didn't happen as often as it should do and that made me think in terms of because the report then went on to speak about um, knowledge in terms of the curriculum and earliest curriculum and how different settings translate that the knowledge of practitioners because earlier settings if you're attached to a school 
and the level of um, experience and education they expect compared to PVIs and the private sector is very different and what that knowledge and that focus is on. And then it also spoke about um, the debate around child-initiated learning and adult learning and the complexities in terms of open-ended questions, closed questions, and how they all have an impact on early years education and shaping these children to then access their education when they move on to year one. And like I said, in terms of early years, that report really ignited my passion for early years, but also as an early years practitioner coming fresh out of university, what can I do in my first few years of teaching to make a real difference, not only for a particular group of children, but all those children. What really interested me about that um, report as well was how they um, defined the term pedagogy. So of course they spoke about the instructional techniques and strategies relating to the adult and the child and the interactive processes, but also referred to it to include aspects of the learning environment, including the concrete learning environment. My next question was going to be about what do you think kind of evidence-informed school leadership is? I think you've just described it. I think you've just described a kind of a career where you're looking at these touchstones of evidence. They're helping hold a mirror up to some, some aspects of pedagogy that you're aware of, but it's giving you a sharper language for it. And then also that important element of translating it into practices, so changing the, the environment. Can I just, just go to an earlier point and just ask for clarification? Because I think... Some people in our audience will know what sustained shared thinking is, um, particularly kind of people who in the early years or language development. Can you just give a, a nice simple explainer what that is for everybody? Yeah, so it's usually, it, happen, it can happen with a group of children. I think when it's most effective, it's one-on-one, so a child and an adult. And it's them engaging in a rich, purposeful conversation that is very natural, led by the child, but the teacher or the adult then talks to the child and responds accordingly. And depending on the level of that conversation, there's use of open, higher order questioning as well in order to sustain that conversation. That's great. And what's really useful about that as well is actually sustained shared thinking is you know, language we've drawn from a research paper, which is distilled lots of evidence. And actually what it describes is something that seems really natural, that actually really great teachers and you know, adults in early years, they do that. But often so much of this is left as, as an intuition and, and we don't actually mobilise it or share it. And, and that for me is where evidence of leadership can be really powerful, where research evidence can often distill and create a language for really effective practices and, and it can challenge sometimes our assumptions as well, not just kind of reinforce and, and give us a language for the things we do well. Um, so that's a really, really useful example, I think. Uh, so my next question, rather than ask what evidence-informed school leadership is, I kind of, I want to ask, what does it mean to you? You know, how, how do you envisage that? Okay. I think there's no single uh, key determinant of an effective school. I think the evidence does tell us that there's many different factors uh, that contribute to the success of every child within our care. So it's important to me as a leader to create a culture within school where leaders are not only encouraged to engage with research, but as a leader, I think it's important to provide that headspace and that time for our leaders to engage with research. So if we're a school or we're a school aspiring to have research at the heart of what we do, then as a leader, we have to enable that to happen and a huge part of that is giving them the time for that to happen. 
And I think things to consider are, is it a priority on your school improvement plan? What does your CPD calendar look like? Um, is it strategic in its approach? Are we doing fewer things better? Are we trying to cram everything in, in terms of what we've heard, this is the best thing to do? Are we confident within our approach, knowing that it's the right thing to do, the right thing for our children, our community, in our context, and we're going to do it really well, but we're going to take our time to do it? And I think most importantly as well, it's giving our leaders the confidence to think that along the way, we're going to make mistakes. That's fine. But building in those reflection sessions to really analyze what we're doing, how it's going, and most importantly, the lessons learned from those mistakes and how we're going to amend and move for, adapt to moving forward. It's really interesting to hear you describe culture within that, Asima, and you know, just all of those complexities around finding time for people to engage with evidence. And I was really um, struck with with thinking about those threads from the evidence and how that impacts decision-making in school. Um, and just maybe pick up on, on that in terms of current use of research evidence in your school and reflections that you have on that. So I'll give the example of metacognition. And as a school, we have been probably working on metacognition for a five to seven year period. Um, it's been a feature on our school improvement plan and um, our staff are really keen and knowledgeable about it now. So in terms of how we implement any research base um, in our school is initially we identify who the experts are in that field and they become the leads on that particular um, element. Where relevant, then training is provided to upskill them further and also implementation support is also provided so they've got a secure, solid understanding of implementation. Those leads and experts then work very closely with a member of the SLT. Again, a member of the senior leadership team will, one member will be lead on that program. And they'll talk about the school improvement plan, the priorities and what they need to do next. It usually always then starts off with some kind of reflection or audit, and particularly with metacognition. We've been doing it for so long. Where are we at? What are we doing really well? Most importantly, what do we need to do in terms of the next stage? We then develop a plan and a working party is formed. The working party, uh, forming the working party is really important because we make sure that it's representative of um, teachers across the school. So we've got a voice across the school. And it's this working party will, who will then be responsible for taking back that initial strategy and trialing it in their classrooms. They then meet on a regular basis to then provide feedback to the senior leadership team and the program leads and experts in terms of this is the element that we've trialed and this is what we found in terms of great, but this is the obstacles we face. They then as a group talk about those obstacles and think about ways around it and how to iron out those issues. When we feel that we've got a real secure base and we've trialed out those um, things, we then meet and say, right, we're ready for full implementation. This uh, period could last anything from six to 12 months if we're doing it properly. And once we're ready for that whole school implementation, we introduce it to the whole school through not a one-off CPD session, but a series of CPD sessions. We plan out our CPD cal calendar before we start our year in line with our school priorities. 
And we carefully build in there, well, actually, if we're starting on week one, where's the reflection session? What does week five within that program look like? And where there's time for those teachers just to sit and reflect as a whole school. Once this training has been delivered, we then offer a series of carefully planned um, coaching sessions. So as a school, we have a coaching model. Every single teacher, irrespective of the level that they're working at, has an assigned coach. And then if metacognition in terms of those two elements within that seven um, step model are a focus this year, that's the coaching support that those teachers will receive. I think the reason that we approach um, evidence-based practice in this way is because I think we uh, want to implement it with proper rigor and thought behind it. And a staggered approach to implementation allows us to foresee any issues. Um, and then while we have the implementation cycle and we're embedding it, it gives us a proper opportunity to embed it properly. And by upskilling our staff, we're not really reliant on one or two members. If they do decide to move on, we know that we've got staff in our school who are skilled to a level who can then continue it and that sustainability element of fit and comes into play. You described that so clearly, that, that really extended explore phase and bringing so many voices to implementation and, and, and the effective PD that you've done around that um, and looking for that sustained change. I mean, particularly with metacognition, you know, really that, that shared model, that shared understanding takes time to develop, doesn't it? So that's a really great example. Thank you. Let me echo what Kirsten said about metacognition. It's, you know, as, as we all know, it's complex, it's multifaceted. There's a lot of gains to be had if there is that shared understanding and it leads to, to practices. And I can even think about connections all the way back to sustained shared thinking and kind of how, how we you know really initiate brilliant practice in the classroom. Can I get then, just with, the, with those factors in mind in terms of supporting school leaders and supporting schools to engage with evidence, what would your desire be for kind of future directions for research evidence and how it can inform school improvement? What's this kind of ideal, better future um, that we're aiming for in that regard? So I think in terms of moving forward and making research more accessible uh, in a time-sensitive environment would be to look at um, how we can make it more accessible to leaders. I think what plays a really big part, particularly from my personal point of view, is when I'm reading research, I'm always thinking about my school, my community, my children, and how does that look like in practice and how will my teachers then uh, interpret that? Uh, what I've come across most recently is video examples where you can, not so um, long, but where you can look at the research and then you can look at, well, actually, this is it in action. Research in action, small videos would be really, really beneficial. And I also think time to um, go into a setting and seeing it live as well, and then having that discussion around, well, actually, this is how we did it in our school. These are the basis or the principles of effective um, implementation. And this is how you can possibly do it in your setting. I think that, that notion of evidence into action and, and being the title of the podcast is, is an appropriate endpoint, I think. Um, but, but yeah, that... There's been a lot in there. I'm really interested how in, in the school and the trust you've got a process and a supportive process that brings everyone along thoughtfully thinking step by step. But there's still work to do, isn't there? I think a, a key thread, Kirsten, we're kind of getting a sense of in this podcast is, yes, there's been great progress but in the last decade around engaging with evidence. It's become normal. It's become part of school leadership. 
but but actually we still recognize there's still barriers there's still limits of that time sensitive point you made asima feels like really key but also access and collaboration and and contextualization you know and kind of trying to make those intelligent adaptations to your setting what, what are your final reflections kirsten yeah, I think also recognition of how long it takes. And you really painted that picture so clearly for us in, in terms of exploring what that evidence can look like in your own context, that those local factors. You you are the professional in your school and, and know your children really well. And so it's bringing that professional expertise and building in time for, for everybody's voices to be heard as part of that process. So thank you, Asima. Yeah, really lovely to get a snapshot of, of things in your school. Yeah, thank, thank, you. thank you from me too. It was lovely to hear. You can just hear children in the background. So we'll, we'll let you get back to, to those classrooms. Thank you, Asima. Thank you. So our third and final guest, I'm excited to introduce Andy Samways. Andy is Director of Teaching School Hub and Research School at Unity Schools Partnership. So I think it's fair to say he's a very busy man. So really appreciate his time. Um, Andy, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, a bit of your background in education and, and your current roles? Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Kirsten. Thanks for the opportunity. Yes. So I work in Suffolk in the east of the country. My background is in secondary education. I trained as a geography teacher, although I had to do a science PGC. So that was a challenge and interesting one way back when. Um, I then uh, led in sick, my first leadership positions were in sixth form and then went on to deputy headship and acting headship for a while. Then most recently, for the last sort of eight, nine years, I've been working around increasingly teacher development as leading a teach school alliance teach school hub and research school work now so my work now primarily is around teacher development leadership development and it's a professional privilege when one gets the opportunity to do that around the region and wider that's great and you know one reflection about the different roles that you have you know with your teaching school hub research school is that's a real system-wide role isn't it in terms of trying to mediate you know, training, high quality evidence, embedding that. So, so you're seeing the challenges on the front line. So interesting, I'm sure that that sort of that's drawn out. The first question though is quite personal, um, and there's a bit of a, a journey to use the J word. Uh, there's a bit of a journey in terms of engaging with evidence and being evidence informed, and it can often start with kind of something that changes your mind or something that gets you really interested and engaged. So, my first question: Can you explain how a piece of research evidence has changed the way you think about education? Thanks. This was, yeah, that's hard because there's plenty that have. And I suppose if I distill it to the one that's most recently and most pervasively changing is the, is that around effective professional development, about the mechanisms, the role that mechanisms play in that which is what, you know, professional development, continued professional development. That piece that the evidence review that underpins the EF guidance report on effective professional development that sought to identify mechanisms that if employed have a strong chance of changing someone's behavior was a real sort of light bulb moment when going okay so it is about changing behavior implementation is about changing people's behaviors teaching leadership is conducive to habit formation and to change one's habits is really hard but it can be done and therefore how can we put our resource to best effect through thinking about the four groups of mechanisms, building knowledge, motivating teachers, 
developing teach techniques and embedding practice. How can that be done at a range of scales from subject, school, trust, programs across a number of trusts? So for me, that's been the one that's most been prevalent in my thinking most recently. But there are plenty of others before then, not least things like uh, around working memory. If someone had told me that about the, at the start of my career, goodness me, I'd have thought of things differently. I, I want to try and focus on one of those. It'd be really easy to kind of go down a rabbit hole with with both areas. But if I go back to uh, professional development, I, I think I had a bit of a similar um, revelation in terms of the mechanisms and behaviour change. One of the things about um, engaging with evidence is you need to build knowledge, don't you? You need to understand yeah. about working memory, but that doesn't always translate into changing your teaching. So there's there's sometimes a bit of a knowing doing gap with being evidence informed. And I wonder in terms of professional development, how do you think about trying to bridge that difference between knowing something about working memory, knowing the evidence about professional development, and then actually making sure that teachers can change their practices in the classroom and are supported to do so? You know, if I think about the work around the early career framework and the early career teacher programme, for example, the role of deliberate practice. So how do we actually, so building knowledge is one, one part, so clear, consistent knowledge, the mechanism around that, making sure that the motivation is there. But then the third one, which about uh, developing teaching techniques, how do we actually seek to do that? What are the mechanisms that we seek to do that? whether it be deliberate practice or, or others, in that sense of how can we arrange the opportunity for it to be tried, to be tested, and to be brought into one's repertoire, if, you, if, if we could describe it as that, in the moment in a classroom. So that's hard. And so how can we establish uh, within a teaching and leadership development programme the opportunities for very clear instruction of what that technique might be but then also understanding of practicing it before we get to the, the arena of the classroom. So I think it's that sense of how that rehearsal is brought, built into something. And that's not through role play. That's the, it's about how can we, you know, it might be actually about a particular planning a route to planning. It doesn't necessarily have to be a performance piece, but that focus, intentional focus on let's actually develop the technique rather than just the knowledge. Yeah, that, that's, that's a really useful perspective. And, and what I like there is how you've actually steered into the likes of early career framework, these kind of systems and that are in the system now. So we're aware of this. It's not just enough to read some research evidence. You have to kind of you know translate it. And, and one of the things to say, and where evidence informed comes to life for me, is that often the research doesn't tell you what to do, does it? It doesn't tell you the, the how. It just gives you the what of, say, working memory. So that's often where teacher expertise has to supplement you know, some of the insights from the evidence. If I can just sort of say that, and I think that piece around, we always, the, the, the mantras that, w that are at the heart of our work where we do the evidence supplementing experience, it doesn't supplant it, it comes alongside um, that and helps inform judgments. Uh, the other one, which I think is challenging, about the best bets, evidence provide best bets at best. It says something might have a chance of working. And I think the, the guidance report on PD describes that exactly. The sense you might have all those four groups of mechan mechanisms represented, not all 14, but all four groups represented, and it may work. It may do. It doesn't necessarily guarantee it. And that sense of holding evidence in the sense of this could work most of the time if we take this and that into account i think is really where evidence informed leadership is 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 moving us to be more aware of i think 
And it'd be great. Maybe we can zoom into an example in your school at the moment or, or part of your trust and think about some research evidence that you're using at the moment and, and your reflections on, on how that's going. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I'm going to use one that's been probably our longest stay piece, if that's OK, you know, around uh, making best use of TAs. That we were involved with our, our very first programme that we stepped into as a research school. And we were we, we were keen to be part of the genesis of the research as well. So in the evidence. So we, we, we brought a group of schools together to be part of the Maximise the Impact of TAs programme evaluation, the random control trial. And one of our schools was fortunate enough to be part of the in the uh, the actual intervention group and actually went through the whole process. So Laureate Community Academy, and seeing being part of being alongside them as they've used so they've taken the recommendations, they they built the knowledge around the recommendations, they considered the context through you know auditing very carefully what their school practices were, what their opportunities were, where they thought their needs lay, and they worked through the program considering very carefully exploring what would we need to be done, preparing, thinking carefully about the nature of what needs to be done and when, and going through this process of planning for implementation before delivering. And, and talking to Dave Perkins, the head teacher there, love the opportunity to talk to him about it because he said, I can always remember him saying, he said, I thought I knew my school really well, but actually when he lifted the lid on with the lens of implementation, thinking about the process of that staged implementation he said it's transformed what I do and how I do it within my school to the extent that his school improvement plan now is actually framed around an, um, uh, an implementation plan because he found that it the, the the creation of teams around a central process for making best use of TAs having that clarity and that um, buy-in over time supported a change in practice I suppose in that way Making best use of TAs has been one, um, and then uh, uh, just bring it to the present day. Uh, we, we're doing an awful lot of work around primary curriculum, and how with that we can be utilising not just the the what of what we know about best practice around literacy and numeracy in particular, but how the how how can we make sure that across a group of schools implementation is supported so that teachers and leaders at different stages can bring the best of evidence into the practice in their local context. You just you describe that <clears throat> that explore phase really clearly and and that moving beyond our hunches. I, I love the, your your example of the head teacher going. I thought I knew what was happening, yeah. um, but actually that exploration, that interrogation of, of all sorts of different different ways of monitoring what's happening in our schools. It'd be great to get your perspective on some of those pinch points of implementation. So where there have been particular challenges with either of those examples. Because we know that constant monitoring and evaluation is is so much part of that process. What does that look like for you? Yeah, pinch points. So if I if I think of the MITRE trial, for example, pinch points um, securing buy in would be one one key part because culture is so so crucial. It's not just dropped into a school; it has to be grown within that school. So being aware of the principles that needs and the practices need to be there. So pinch points, one would be about the buy-in. The second one would be about um, the capability of staff, the skills of staff, not the HR capability part, but the actual skills that staff have that are all levels that around this particular, around the, the what it is, whatever it is you're doing. So in this particular case, it was the practice of you know, using least help first. How can teachers and TAs 
consistently use least help first so that pupils are given the opportunity to think and not outsource their learning to the nearest adult closest to them. And that's, you know, that's not easily done because we, you know, changing a habit of answering a question or rather than bouncing back a question can be really hard in, a, in the heat of a moment in a lesson. So that sense of uh, capability, the skills and the knowledge required around the actual process itself. And I think the third one, third pinch point is about time and space for this. Schools are busy places. They have an awful lot going on. And the challenge for brave leadership is to be doing less but doing it better and that's hard when you've got external priorities coming your way as well external accountabilities and it's about those judgments to say right now this has got a reason for implementation because it's actually going to be supporting better teaching better learning and better outcomes for pupils and being brave and sticking to that um, so i thought so, so parts about time about buy-in and about the actual skills i think would be pinch points that all have been lived on that journey and mitigated the best abilities but you, you, you it's never a, a done thing is it yeah and doing a few things well <laughs> a real challenge isn't it and, and and isolating what those things are it kind of leads on nicely to, to reflecting on, on on how school leaders can be best supported to engage with evidence you work in a number with a number of different hats on Andy and yeah. it'd be interesting to get your reflections about those support structures coming back to that issue around time and so on so how people can be supported in our schools yeah um, and I think another piece that colleagues across the network have brought to my attention is the, um, the COMB model for behaviour change from Mitchie et al and actually, I think that's a really helpful lens. I, 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 as a geographer, I like diagrams, I like frameworks, and I love the idea of having a lens by which to look through something at. Schools are complex places. Um, there's the persistent issues of school leadership. They're all yeah, they're still always there, and they're never going to go away. So the combi model for me, I think, actually is a really helpful way. So that sense of number, you know, if it's about uh, changing behaviour, as any implementation is, it's about you know capabilities, so the skills and the no the knowledge and the skills. How if it's about if there's a need for go, improving upskilling around knowledge and skills, then there's there are yeah. Where do we find the knowledge? Where are the recommendations that we can go to? Where are the trusted sources of evidence we can bring alongside? But also, where can we seek to draw out of the the, the school, the mat, wherever the local evidence of promise uh, in that way? So, so there's a capability, the improving the ability to make the change is the first one. The second one would be about the motivation. So let's not assume, you know, I love working the opportunity to work alongside Mark Rowland, my colleague, in that sense of ass assessment, not assumption. Let's, let's, let's assess the motivation. To what extent are we ready for this? To what extent do we need to change the desire to do something? And I think that part of, you know, using the Simon Sinek, start with why, selling the why, why are we doing this? And that very clear identification of a tight area for the improvement that's actually amenable to change is really important. So helping school leaders actually get to that is important, I think. Then the third one about the opportunities, yeah, and this is this is the hard again, again, you know, no simple answers on this, but how can the opportunity be crafted, whether it by, be by helping make space within a planned piece of, of, of uh, teacher leadership development? looking ahead, sequencing it well in advance so that it meshes in with the practices of a group of schools. So, for example, working with a, a really enjoying working alongside a, a, a multi-academy trust in, in Essex around 
bringing alongside them more uh, more awareness of implementation process but that's you know started way back in february we we met with head teachers that, of the trust we went through thinking about it that then snowballed into planned work with the senior leadership senior leaders of those schools in each of their contexts so they could feel they could understand it and question around it then bringing middle leadership alongside because they're the, the, the workroom of those schools in that way and thinking then about the so bringing to them the opportunity but also helping grow the motivation and the capability but thinking where was the key in for that and the opportunity was that one we want to end with a kind of a positive vision for the future recognizing you know lots of gains in terms of school leader school leaders in england have evidence baked into the system in lots of ways some some you know, imperfect, some you know, limitations on people's time and engagement with that evidence, but some real promise, real, real positives. And it feels like part of school culture. But what, what would you, what would take it forward in a few years time, you know, we've got evidence in form leadership and it's really flying and, and just exemplary. What do you think, what are the ingredients for that positive future for you? Access to trusted knowledge, trusted evidence that makes it easy but doesn't dumb down an understanding of the evidence. The people who can come alongside schools, organisations, mats, to play their part in decide to, to unpicking that evidence to support the uh, the busy lives of school leaders to say, have you considered how this might come alongside your place? And I also think a recognition that that curiosity of evidence can tell us evidence has always been created. And actually, the, 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 there's a sense of what can be brought by schools, mats, organisations to the evidence base. And that's that sense of the identification of early promise. So it's not a top down. This is what evidence is saying. Actually, it's saying, look, we're seeing some evidence of promise here by this particular approach. We, we've identified it as underpinned by this, this and this. And actually, that we believe we'd like to test this a bit more. No, thank you. I, I think my sense, my interpretation, Andy, from, from all of your answers is that being evidence informed doesn't offer easy answers. There's no kind of top down kind of formula we can all follow. But you, you really well characterize the support for a curious approach to change, a careful approach to supporting behavior, and then a recognition that this is all so complex, it still mightn't work. So we need some trust and we need some support. So I think what you've done, not just in that answer, I think in the interviews, you've just really characterised a complex but supportive, curious process that helps school leaders do a brilliant job in difficult circumstances. Thank you. And I, yeah, it, I, I was inspired, um, always inspired by so many people, but yeah, I remember Estelle Morris describing how using evidence we should be doing it because we, we're standing on the shoulders of those who've gone with, gone before you know we we've we've got you know there's a rich legacy that people are adding to and if we can individually and collectively be doing that then we stand to be doing the best with the service that we seek to provide schools you know, in that way that's a brilliant point to end on isn't it that kind of being evidence informed is standing on the shoulder of, of giants over the kind of the classic quote but you yeah, completely appreciate that. Really positive ending. Andy, thank you for taking your time out. You're incredibly busy. You wear multiple hats, um, probably literally and figuratively. No, it's um, a multi, multi, diff, diff, you know, different colour lanyards, I suppose. Different colour lanyards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've, got, you've got a full array of lanyards, uh, yeah. which every school leader uh, needs and wants. Uh, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you both. Great to talk to you.
really great to hear from Nick, Asima, and Andy. I, I think we pitched a, a complex, multifaceted topic, evidence-informed school leadership. There's lots in there, so it was always going to be quite wide-ranging and, and, and probably no neat answers. But just want to open up to you, Kirsten. What were your final reflections after hearing all of those insights? Yeah, great to hear from everyone, wasn't it? Um, oh, school culture has just been that thread that seems to have gone right the way through all three. Just thinking back to the, the time taken to, to engage with evidence. And Asima was talking us through the metacognition in her school and, and how that needed to be so carefully planned. And, and Andy bringing the kind of local experience of schools, holding on to principles of evidence, but being careful, having that careful flex within, within their own context. But I really celebrate the conversations we're having about evidence, that rich legacy that, that was described and schools having this growing exploration of the nuance. And I guess for us at EEF, it's remembering that challenge of making evidence accessible, but not too simple and actionable for schools, thinking about how that's implemented, just really key. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot in what you just said. We could go on probably for another hour, couldn't we, explaining <laughs> yeah. about evidence-informed school leadership. Um, but those ingredients and that, that first one, culture, um, I liked Andy's C-word, curiosity. Yes. Um, you know, this isn't about kind of being didactic. The evidence says X. It's going to then, you know, be implemented successfully. There's so much more nuance. And, and probably um, I will go all the way back to, to Nick's um, analogy, I think he might have borrowed it from, from a colleague, Julia Cleverden, but wherever it's from, it's a good one in terms of that cafeteria and that being evidence informed is not about kind of plunging, pushing down evidence onto, you know, our, our school colleagues. It's a, more about that percolation, more about that kind of, again, it comes back to culture, doesn't it? That kind of immersing people with the time, with the support factors to engage in well-communicated evidence in these best bets and then also that percolation to experiment to trial to, to undertake those inquiries that are rooted in your school and community so i, I feel like i'm going to wait go away and, and percolate over over the percolate analogy and, and probably use it myself as well thank you thank you again kirsten and, and thank you everyone for listening um our next episode which will be um out in about a month's time is focused on eal and we're going to look at different aspects of um, English as an additional language and, and the experience of learners in our schools. And, and we'll draw upon um, experts like Professor Victoria Murphy from Oxford University. So that'll be an exciting one and look forward to catching up with you then. Thank you. And if you want to sign up to the podcast, EF's Evidence Into Action, please do subscribe and hopefully we'll see you again soon.